You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. This episode is our end-of-year recap for 2022. Point-of-Care Partner Subject Matter Experts Pooja Babra, Pharmacy and PBM Practice Lead and Chair of the NCPDP Board of Trustees, Jocelyn Keegan, Payer Practice Lead and HL7 Da Vinci Program Manager, and Kim Boyd, Regulatory Resource Center Lead and NCPDP Board of Trustees member, all came together to discuss this past year's health IT policy and standards development highlights and take a look forward into 2023. We hope you find Find today's episode informative and helpful. And if you have topic ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, be sure to share them with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com or tweeting us at POCPHIT. This is our last episode of 2022, and we wanted to make it special. So we've, we've asked our POCP regulatory resource lead, Kim Boyd, to join us so we can break down all the big things that have happened in this past year and what we expect for 2023. While much of what we'll be discussing will be policy related, we'll also talk about some of the real progress that's being made in the standards world and the interconnectedness between federal and state health IT policy and legislation and between standards and policy and what that means to industry. But before we jump into the discussion, I'd like to have Jocelyn and Kim briefly introduce themselves and each tell us what they're most excited about discussing today. Hi, I'm Jocelyn Keegan. I'm our payer practice lead. Um, I've been with POCP, gosh, it's crazy, about six years now. And I spend time in the interoperability space and I live and breathe sort of payer provider collaboration on a day-to-day basis. And I think that one of the things that I am really excited about talking about today is this idea of where we are at a point in time. So not individual activities that have happened, but sort of the tone and the tenor to work that we've been developing and projects that have been underway for you know years now coming to fruition and watching organizations and policy go into place that really is starting to shift us from this idea of building someday to this idea that we are actively implementing, we're seeing production go live, we're seeing sort of the folks coming out of the fog of the pandemic really ready for action and uh, in, in a pragmatism to operationalize things in a meaningful way. Great. Thanks, Joss. Kim, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, it's always a pleasure convening with you two ladies on this exciting world, you know, of health information technology. Not as extensive, I don't think, as Jocelyn, but I know my career has spanned, you know, in medical and pharmacy operations and in implementations with years of policy and industry and standards to development work under my belt, um, working on prior authorization and now electronic prior authorization and cost and data transparency and fluidity and e-prescribing and taking, you know, what I've learned um in these areas and work with policymakers to create smart policies to advance, you know, the the interoperability lens and advance patient care. Ultimately, it has been an exciting year leading the regulatory resource uh, center for point of care partners. So much is happening in the state and federal regulatory and legislative activities, Pooja, you know, that you just brought up in the opening and how all this space ties to the innovations and the accelerations that we are experiencing uh, in healthcare today. Great. Thank you both for those introductions. So let's go ahead and jump in. I want to start by each going around and sharing just what we think the biggest highlights of 2022 in health IT were. Kim, why don't you go ahead and start? 
Yeah, as you know, as it indicated, it's been a really busy year. And I think for me, there are really four things that stand out from 2022 that I think are going to take us into 2023, 2024 and beyond. Part of that is the requirements coming out for the Transparency and Coverage Rule, the No Surprises Act that are going into effect and have been in effect. And those various provisions requiring data and cost transparency and giving patients and their care teams access to that, you know, information that they need to help them make informed decisions. I think that's definitely one piece for me. Many in the industry have been clamoring for this type of transparency and and data liquidity for some time. Second, I think it's the incredible work that's happening to advance interoperability via the standards development organizations and the accelerators, which I know Jocelyn is a key facilitator there, uh, such as the HL7 DaVinci use cases, uh, Codex, uh, FAST, and even NCPDP's Pharmacy Technology Innovation Group. Third for me is how the federal agencies are collaborating, collaborating collaborating like we haven't seen in the past and really aligning the requirements coming out of the interoperability landscape and like using standards like FHIR and those FHIR-based standards specifically. So this collaboration and the preceding regulations that we're seeing coming out of it will help align the technical and interoperability stars for us, I think. Definitely last and last but not least is the all hands on deck focused on patient health equity. That's a big area of concentration for not only the innovators that are in the market, but those that are coming into the market as well, and even the White House, HHS globally, and the standards development body. So those are four big things, I think, for me coming out. Great. Thanks, Kim. Joss, want to add to that? I'm going to first protest that Kim got to go first. Um, (laughs) I agree across the board with everything that she's highlighting. Um, And I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of going from, you know, someday to action and reality. You know, I, I think to be clear, not everyone, but what we're seeing is many organizations and projects are moving forward to do not just the technical work, but the business transformation that's required to get into interoperability as we imagine it. So, you know, we're seeing real progress on projects like TEFCA. We're seeing real world deployments with fire implementation guides. We're seeing live active usage of APIs that went live under regulatory requirements last year around the patient access API. And we're seeing, you know, the goodness of finally seeing some regs for MedD on pharmacy um, PA actually starting to get this like next generation of infusion in it. So I want to talk a little bit more though about Kim's comment about the coordination at the federal level. You know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is the outputs of things that the feds have been working on for over a decade. And I often talk about it as, you know, really this idea of this, them being Atlas and putting these levers in place to move the industry. And I think they've done that extraordinarily well. I think if I look at what's happening in this, in the industry, I think that what we can see is over this year, we saw three camps of people, people that have been actively paying attention and working ahead of where the industry is headed. There's people that are working actively to get their organizations ready as the second camp. And then I think that we've got those folks that are always sort of sitting and waiting to see where the alignment is, sort of playing the waiting game. And I think that this year in particular, everyone has been waiting. We're planning for regs to drop. I'm not sure we've had this much bated breath at the end of the year in a really long time. Thanks, Kim and Joss, for those great responses. And Joss, I completely agree with you. I think we're now starting to get to that point where, you know, people are actually starting to implement. So I'm just going to throw in kind of two topics that I think have a little bit been under the radar. And I think, Jocelyn, to your point, right, we kind of wait for federal rules to come out, things to happen, and then people start implementing. So the two um, that I'm going to talk about are are things that we're just starting to see swirl that I think we're going to end up seeing more activity next year is, you know, e-consent is one. 
I think that's something that we've been talking about for a while at Pointy Care Partners and, you know, the work that's being done uh, kind of at Stores of Change, Maya and other places to really talk about, we need to be thinking about e-consent, right, and how that plays a role in interoperability. And I think just the fact that ONC held that half-day workshop all about e-consent just kind of is a, a leading indicator, right, that this is something that's going to be important. We talked about it all, all year this past year. And I love the way that they actually set up the framework for that workshop where, you know, we're looking at it all the way from women who are pregnant, early childhood to end of life. So, you know, it's different contexts that we have to be thinking about. And I think that's one topic. And I think the other one is just pharmacy. Kim, you mentioned this, uh, you know, in, in, in your topic that pharmacists and, and pharmacies being able to work to support value-based care, right, and bring them into the fold of interoperability is another topic that I feel that has really started to gain traction this year. And I think this last HITAC meeting, you know, just kind of, I think, reiterated the fact that that's going to be important and something, again, we've been kind of talking about all year. You know, at the HITAC committee last week, they proposed having a pharmacy-focused subcommittee, um, which is something we haven't seen in the past. So I think that is another one where, you know, we're just starting to see those uh, discussions that were happening this year that I think will will bring us forward into the next year. All right, so moving on. So let's talk about some of those highlights and more around the policy highlights, I would say. So let's start with some areas where requirements went into effect and whether or not industry met the deadlines or not or still working on it. In my head, those are No Surprises Act, you know, transparency and coverage rules, and also information blocking. Kim, do you want to start off the discussion around that? Yeah, I sure wish they called it uh, information sharing versus information blocking, because I really think that's, you know, what we're trying to drive through in healthcare is that sharing of information. But, you know, you're right on point, Pooja, with a, a couple of those topics, right? So with a No Surprises Act, there's still some pushback and quite honestly, some uncertain uncertainty about how providers are going to comply with having to pull all of that information together, all the data together to provide an advanced DOB to patients in those good faith estimates to patients, especially when there are multiple providers involved in the delivery of the care or that expected care from, you know, for the patient. However, and I'll mention Jocelyn again, you know, the DaVinci Accelerator is working on advancing implementation guidance to support this effort kind of ahead, again, getting ahead of maybe some of what other additional policies might be coming out in 2023 to support advanced DOBs and good faith estimates. So I definitely encourage folks and organizations listening to us today to get involved in those efforts and help continue to move the needle on solving for you know that challenge. I expect we will see more policies coming out related to this pro- policy priority issue, especially given the latest request for information that just closed just couple of days ago on the 15th around advanced EOBs and good faith estimates and what the industry really needed to do and what policymakers should be thinking about there. So I expect the policymakers to use that input to come out with additional guidance uh, relative to, you know, good faith estimates and advanced EOBs. And of course, uh, compliance with the ONC 21st Century Cures Act you know, information blocking rule. Again, I wish we called it information sharing. Compliance with that has been a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, most of the non-compliance or at least reported non-compliance has been on the provider side. But quite honestly, we've heard from many in the industry, it's pretty challenging, you know, when a provider falls under the provisions as an actor under the information blocking rule, but maybe the health system that they're operating in isn't necessarily called out in the information blocking rule. So I think there's some additional work that needs to be done, some clarification 
education that needs to be done to help solve for that. And most of the EHRs I've spoken with are up to speed, actually, on like the full EHI sharing provision that just dropped uh, on October 6th. So that's that's good for an advancement for sure. I'm going to do a little lightning round, Pooja, on the information blocking piece, because I think there's a couple of different layers in here I think that we want to look at. I think the first part is where Kim left off this, the EHI component. You know, while I think technically is important for people to get all of their information out while we wait for USCBI to be fully encapsulating all of the information that's available on a particular patient, it doesn't necessarily move us ahead from a interoperability standpoint, from a, a programmatic approach, right? It puts a lot of likely non-codified data into the system to move around. And I know that there's anxiety in the provider organizations around what they're going to do with sort of this payload of data that comes through them that isn't necessarily usable or actionable. So I think that's important. But I think that the end of year, um, you know, final rules going into place uh, and certification requirements on the EHRs is a really great step forward with being able to get base level requirements of support for fire and at least the minimum of US CDI and US core out there in the market for innovation really to take advantage of and for patients and providers and payers to be able to start to really execute, I think, on a lot of the pent up demand and promise of interoperability. But I'm going to have a little bit of a confessional moment and talk about the fact that I lost an hour of my day on Tuesday when I went to submit the DaVinci AEOB response, reading other people's responses on the patient cost transparency and AEOB RFI. And it's fascinating, right? Because I think that, you know, what Kim touched on is, you know, this reality of what can we do digitally? What is it that we can do that we can automate and that we can make seamless is conceptually really incredibly important here. And the work that we're doing at DaVinci and the work that other groups are doing across the industry to say, how can we leverage existing investments in our existing X12 infrastructure? How do we get to end users that aren't necessarily X12 native, native with things like fire are important, but that there's this fundamental shift in the industry industry of how do we operationally do this work if we can't do it in a real-time automated way? And what is that burden on providers? And I think that we're going to see with this RFI response to Kim's point, really that divide between where we are today operationally. And I almost think of it as how we how we've made our progress around prior authorization. It's not the act of getting the PA submitted. It's those 10 steps beforehand that also need to be automated and need to be made more normalized across endpoints. And, uh, and I think that my guess is, is as, as, uh, as the feds absorb sort of the feedback there that we're going to need to take a step back and really understand what is it going to mean for us to get to that goal that everybody agrees is important, which is a patient really understanding their costs before they have a service provided. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we always talk about it on this podcast, right? It's baby steps, you know, we're, yeah. just, we're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon around all this. So I'm glad you touched on price transparency and the AEOB. Kim, I'm going to uh, turn it back to you. I know there's a lot of state activity around price transparency. And I think, you know, just in, in, in chatting with you and I do, I'm always amazed kind of the state level activity that's happening that I don't think we always pay attention to. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important and, and what's going on at the state level? Yeah, Pooja, um, you know, thank you for bringing that up and bringing up the state ef efforts because I think so many organizations only focus on what's happening at the federal level that they actually forget that there's state policy out there. And that's a big part of the equation, too, especially when you think about who does CMS have oversight over versus 
who's licensed in a state as an example to, right, uh, to effectuate benefits for patients, right, who is on uh, who is on the hook for it. So, you know, on the data and data and cost transparency side, and when I talk about cost transparency, I, I just want to level set. We're talking about predominantly patient out-of-pocket costs, and there are many factors that that bring up what that cost might be. But when I'm when I'm talking about policy, I'm really talking about patient out-of-pocket costs, right, and that transparency to that informing consumers. So under the Regulatory Resource Center, though, here at Point of Care Partners, we have been um, experiencing and seeing states doubling down to move the needle on the data fluidity, data cost transparency, data sharing, and it being a key component of interoperability. We're looking at that on a daily basis from, you know, what is required around those entities who are licensed in those states, how are they required to share patient-specific benefit coverage, eligibility, cost information upstream to providers and our providers, you know, third-party entities or partners, and even to patients slash consumers. So think about, you know, what we've seen in, in the convergence of the digital applications coming to market, right, that are patient-facing. Some of those state provisions are requiring that type of data sharing, you know, at the attestation or consent, which you brought up earlier, Bouja, of the patient into that application. So we're starting to see that there's been a trend going on now for a couple of years, and it's starting to surmount there. Also trends on doubling down on like the hospital transparency rules and what we just talked about before, like the AEOBs and good faith estimates and, and really doubling down on the, these requirements. And we're seeing it happen tenfold. Yeah, thanks, Kim. You know, I think people often forget, right, that states can add that additional enforcement teeth above and beyond what, what the feds have done, right? So that's, that's great to, uh, right. you know, yeah. call out so people under the, pay attention. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And under, you know, the, the good faith estimate side on the No Surprises Act, right, it, it's a collaborative between federal, you know, compliance, state compliance or a combination thereof. Yeah, I think yeah, most forget about great. it. Good. All right. Let's shift um, a little because we know uh, 2022 has also been a year of anticipation. I know we've been looking for the burden reduction prior auth rule that were shelved back in 2020 to reemerge either as a final rule or as a new proposed rule. And there's finally, I think, a little bit of a glimpse of that timeline. I know it's at OMB. And of course, I don't know when this podcast is actually going to come out, but we're close to Thanksgiving. So, you know, we're probably drop right <laughs> right before Thanksgiving, as things always do. But Kim, can you talk a little bit about where that is? And then Jocelyn, I want to actually get your take also on what you think might be different uh, than the 2020 version. So Kim, you want to kick us off on that one? Absolutely. There's definitely a twinkle in my eye and you can't see it because I think I'm squinting just a little bit, but I'm, I'm really excited about what the future potentially got to hold for having that, you know, burden reduction rule come out and that rule drop, even though hoping it's not Thanksgiving because I'd like to share some time with family during that time, but it's, it's infamous for coming out around the holidays. So, you know, to your point, uh, Pooja, it came out, it was pulled back back in 2020, but so many endeavors have been happening in the industry again, through the Da Vinci lens, quite honestly to fulfill on that promise of doing prior authorization automation on the medical side. And even other accelerators like Codex are leaning into what DaVinci has put out there to, to replicate that automated process on the cancer care side. So we did see like mid-October, this uh, rule hit the OMB 
uh, ledger, if you would. So we're really anticipating that, you know, this is a, a signal that we should see by Thanksgiving, hopefully by Christmas, this next rule drop iterating on what we expect to happen. And that is the call for automation for, for medical prior authorization, for sure. Right. Joss, what, what do you think has changed from the 2020 rule or what do you think we anticipate? Yeah, so so th- there's a couple thoughts I think to unpack here. I think that there is, you know, I think that there is this anticipation and we can see organizations, you know, essentially understanding what impact's going to be, but not pulling a trigger until we see the regulatory activity or an NPRM actually come to fruition, you know, sort of starting the clock. And we see those folks that are, that are ahead of the curve and actively doing that transformation work. But I, I want to pause for a second and talk a little bit about the scope of the actual MPRM that we saw in 2020 and the final rule that came out. And it actually was much bigger than prior authorization. It was really doubling down on what came out with patient access API and codifying that as the required implementation guide. So I think it, it, it showed, it foreshadowed sort of where ONC and CMS are headed, not just saying you need to be fire compliant, but look, we're going to give common recipes so we can get to that semantic interoperability that is has been so elusive to us in the industry and sort of the power of fire to be able to get to that recipe, I think is really important. And I think what we're seeing um, timing wise is, you know, I would say more forwardness than I think I've ever seen from our colleagues at CMS about openly discussing the fact that the rule is at OMB. Normally, I think they would be very quiet. So I think everybody's being as bullish as they can be to sort of set expectations with the industry that this is coming and it's returning. And I was, I would be surprised. I mean, anticipating that what is coming is that we'll see our Medicare Advantage plans be included, which were excluded for for timing reasons for the 2020 rule. And uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much oomph there is in any sort of MPRM to the inclusion of actual named guides or if and named timelines in the actual MPRM itself to what level of detail we get, you know, sort of named versions of guides or specific timelines or partial, you know, based on the feedback that came back in 2020 and in the ONC RFI that happened this spring on prior authorization, you know, whether or not the feds have taken to heart the industry feedback of incremental incrementalism, right? That we really need to do this in an incremental approach. So I'm super excited. There is an interesting wrinkle that I want to make sure we uncover for folks, which is there is work on prior authorization in legislation that's pending um, in the House and the Senate right now in the Improving Seniors Access to Care legislation that's out there. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of us that are crossing fingers and toes and whatever else that this rule does appear ahead of any legislative activity there. And the fact that we're in sort of a lame duck situation, I think has got people holding their breath and doubling down even more on, you know, is it is it not going to happen um, before we get to the end of the year? And I would just say that I'm with Kim. I hope you don't see something for Thanksgiving. And, and with any luck, if we do see something, it'll at least be a week or two out from Christmas so we don't all have our holidays explode in response to it, because I'm sure it will be a page turner. Yeah, definitely. No, thanks for calling out that legislation. That's something I know we, uh, a lot of folks have been tracking as well. So both of you have talked a little bit about the RFIs that are out there. There are a couple of CMS uh, requests for information. So I want to kind of switch to that and talk about, you know, what is the government asking about and what do the questions kind of tell us, right, where their heads are at? Joss, you, you uh, mentioned it a little bit, you know, around around the burden reduction. And I know Da Vinci responds to these kinds of RFIs. So I'd like you to give your uh, perspective first. And then Kim, want to ask you also about kind of what struck you with the RFIs that are out there today. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think that we are seeing an unprecedented amount of coordination and amount of regulatory activity, period, right? End of sentence. And, uh, and it's been a challenge, I think, to be able to marshal the resources and the right sneeze from across organizations. And I'll, I'll speak more broadly than Da Vinci because we're also participating in getting feedback to HL7. And I think that what we're seeing is a maturation and a, a sort of a swarming of resources from organizations out into these industry groups. We get to participate in some weedy conversations. We also get to participate um, both with our POCP and our DaVinci hats on in other groups to give input. And so I think that this idea that that we're seeing, I think this shift coming to fruition that's been happening in the industry with the work of the accelerators and with the work of other industry collaborations like Commonwealth and uh, Care Quality and Sequoia is industry is firmly leading I think that ONC and CMS are putting breadcrumbs out and they're showing roadmap-wise and trying to be as transparent as possible where they're headed. But that that these RFIs really are a series of inquiries to get real-world feedback on a pulse check, not just for the people that are in these leadership roles or or at the head of the pack doing this new work, but allow everybody to weigh in. And I would say remarkably, um, because we go back with my DaVinci hat on, we go back into the RFIs and look at what people have to say afterwards. And that almost across an organization, and Kim will chuckle as I'm saying this, is most people, you know, have sort of their two cents that they say about every RFI, depending on what seat they're in, right? But that across the board, everyone understands that technology is an important part of what we're doing and understand it needs to be ha- be happening. I think that what we're seeing um, across the board is feedback of we need time, we need to take an approach of, of, of incrementalism, we need to um, monitor and mature this work that's out there. But wholesale, no one's coming out and saying we can't do this, we can't fix this. And I think that that's actually really welcoming. And, uh, and I think that we've turned this corner of how are we changing as an industry and how are we letting industry lead? And and CMS and ONC being really keen to understand and get that feedback from industry so that it's a really symbiotic relationship. You know, it's not perfect, but I think that, uh, that, that we're seeing really sort of the years of investment in building relationships and, and channels really getting focused on and uh, amplified uh, over this, the craziness of feedback this year. Yeah, great. Kim, your thoughts on the RFIs? Yeah, I would I would echo a lot of what Jocelyn is saying. You know, I think what really has stood out for me in having to look over all of them and just the plethora of RFIs that have come out um, is just how intuitive they are. And, and in other words, what I mean by that is, again, how the agencies are aligning in, in the release of these RFIs and seeming to solve for interoperability, digitization, but that use and reuse, i.e. what are we learning from the industry? Can we phase it? Can we use what is happening and reuse it across the ecosystem of healthcare? So not just for, you know, payer to payer exchange, provider to provider exchange, but across like the public health infrastructure. Can we infuse uh, what we're learning through the fire resources and use of fire resources in TEFCA and attesting to TEFCA as an example. Certification of HIT, of course, prior authorization comes into play there too. But even the latest one coming out of CMS on the um, National Directory RFI, right? There are questions in there to the industry and to healthcare on the utility of using, again, fire standards to solve for, you know, a national directory that everyone could get access. Too. So I think it's just how it just seems like each of the agencies are collaborating and learning from one uh, each other, iterating, if you would, from one another uh, through this RFI process and what they're learning from the industry. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going to switch to standards. Um, we all work in the standards development space, uh, NCPDP and HL7, of course, our support of some of the accelerators like Bass, Codex, Karen Alliance, and of course, DaVinci. So let's go around the room. Uh, and first, I, I say let's give some kudos right, to some of the biggest accomplishments we've seen in 2022 and, and what we're expecting in 2023. So Kim, I'm going to start with you this time. Thanks for giving me the lead on that one, because I am so excited about some of the kudos that are happening in the industry. So as part of my uh, relationship with Point of Care Partners, too, I also am the use case coordinator for Codex and the prior authorization in oncology use case. And it's not public yet. We have a public meeting coming up. So again, hopefully this either happens after the public meeting, but if not, it's fine. But I'm excited. We are advancing that use case and that proof of concept for automating prior authorization, again, focused on utilizing and reusing what DaVinci has developed to advance prior authorization for, for cancer care for patients. And we're going to the execution phase. So I'm thoroughly excited about how hard those in the industry and the innovators in the industry from the payer community, the EHR community, from physician offices are really rolling up their sleeves to try to solve for this. I think it's awesome and definitely exciting times. I also want to give a shout out to NCPDP. Um, you know, I've been a member of NCPDP for 25 years now on the board, you know, with Yapuja and on part of the, the strategic planning committee. And they've worked really hard to launch a pilot on a national facilitator model to help strengthen the pandemic and the epidemic preparedness and response. So, you know, that, that model is piloting, you know, industry standards that are available and the technology that helps enable pharma and pharmacies and prescribers and government agencies to actually get access to real-time information on prescriptions and testing and immunization-related data and across state lines. So I'm really, I'm really super pumped for, you know, this endeavor and, you know, the learnings from this pilot because I think it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Joss, what are the, uh, some of the highlights from 2022 from your side? I'm going to constrain myself because I could talk for an hour on this topic alone. Um, I think the pace of the work on the implementation guides is really remarkable. Um, from a DaVinci perspective, we've actually kicked off uh, a few new use cases over the last year and a half, and those are coming to fruition. So I'll spend a little bit of time talking to them because I don't get as much airtime. So there's risk adjustment, which is basically allowing us to, um, via API, share information for between providers and payers on patients that need to be uh, classified for higher risk categories. And this is a process that is done on Hooker Crook today. We've made really good process and are actually in the process of bringing the second version of that guide to um, to, to ballot um, in the beginning of next year and, and lots of good testing and engagement. In addition to that, the patient cost transparency use case that we talked about is poised to be able to publish soon as well. Uh, we brought it through balloting this year. All of the other use cases have uh, continued to mature. The clinical data exchange use cases, I think one that's important as we talk about sort of TEFCA becoming a reality and the convergence of TEFCA with the FHIR timeline, this ability to be able to transport codified clinical data between payers and providers and other partners in the industry is really important. And we actually brought the clinical data exchange use case back to uh, ballot three times in the last 18 months to really mature it to make sure that it has the capabilities to be able to support not just the existing scenarios we were talking about around care coordination, but also so that it could serve as a way to transport data 
under what's expected to be a coming attachment rule. So if folks aren't paying attention to that, go ahead and check it out. I think another, um, if I want to pivot sort of away from DaVinci for a minute, there's another thing that happened over the course of the last year, and that was ONC and uh, the community coming together to move fast out of an ONC project and into an industry-led accelerator. And it's really been amazing to watch the support and the leadership come out of industry on fast. Uh, that's the fire at scale task force for folks who aren't paying attention to it. And in uh, the coordination that's happening between fast and the team over at Tecca uh, is going to be really important when we start thinking about how we're scaling these APIs. And I'm going to pause for a second because you've listened to us today say fire, 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 fire. I think that really what's important is, you know, FIRE is a, a really well-designed and I think fit for purpose for what we're trying to do. But what we're talking about from a transformation perspective is really this shift to API and this shift to real-time interactions in the industry. And it's been amazing to watch organizations that are out ahead of the pack. So I'll give a huge checkbox to, uh, to the team out in the Northwest that's kicking butt with their FIRE implementation. So across multi-care regions, Providence, and many different partners out there that are supporting them, we actually have our first live buyer implementations of a fully digital prior authorization workflow that's done completely via fire uh, because of the exception that DaVinci has to the XL standard today between multi-care and regions. And, uh, and we're looking and seeing many other groups and organizations plow ahead from sort of conceptual proof of concepts and connect-a-thon activities to live production releases. So excited about what's going to happen and get announced in Q1 of next year. And then the last thing I would say is you know, just getting back face to face, like literally the people that pulled off in-person productive meetings with volumes of participants, I think that we couldn't have anticipated is so critically important for us to continue to build these communities. Because I think if I were going to use a word to describe 2022, it really is community and how we could get more done in a community. Yeah, that's great. And I love the call out for the real time. And that's, you know, can we get the shout out for the NCPDP uh, facilitator model? And that's exactly what we're doing, right, is testing that real time connection for pharmacies and pharmacists. So great stuff. Just quickly want to add also under Codex, um, the REMS use case. So that's another one what we're uh, marching towards a pilot on. And the really cool thing about that one is it's actually bringing NCPDP and HL7 together once again, you know, where we're really kind of cross-pollinating because REMS is something that hits both the clinical side and the pharmacy side. And I think the other kind of shout out I want to give is to the Helios Accelerator. We started to get involved there. I know they kind of went through at the beginning of the year, like what their use cases are actually going to be. And we're really starting to see traction on those use cases now. So for folks that are listening, if you're not familiar with uh, with the Helios Accelerator, highly recommend you check out their work as well. So, all right, I know we're, <laughs> we're unpacking so much here, um, but I do want to, you know, uh, talk about one more topic. Of course, price and cost transparency are a huge passion of mine, but so is the growing role of pharmacists in the care team. And I know that's another area that I'm really excited about and that we've really started to see some traction on this year. This has been so great. We've been unpacking so many topics and I just want to actually touch on one more. You know, we of course, price and cost transparency have always been a passion of mine, but the other one is really this growing role of pharmacists in the care team, right? And what role pharmacists can play to support providers to support patients and to support value-based care. So I'm going to actually kick this one off just because, uh, again, it's a big passion of mine and something we're really starting to see movement on. You know, for many years, I think we talked about pharmacists playing a greater role, right, in care, in patient care and supporting value-based care. And I feel like it was really the pandemic and really the, the PrEP Act 
that really kind of moved this movement forward. And, and you know, the pharmacists started doing the uh, COVID uh, testing. They started doing the COVID vaccines. And now it's actually opened up that pharmacists can essentially do vaccinations for any of the, the immunizations that are listed on the CDC list. So we're really starting to see that kind of open up. Not only that, I would say pharmacists, you know, I think it's almost 15, maybe 20 states now that are letting pharmacists prescribe, right, for HIV, for um, birth control. And then, of course, there's the Plaxivoid. Um, you know, we all kind of cheered that, that, that pharmacists were going to be able to prescribe that. But when you take a step back and you actually look at that approval, pharmacists have to either order lab tests or be able to prove that, you know, the patient lab tests were clear for them to actually prescribe it. So this, to me, all comes back to interoperability, right? So now you're bringing pharmacists into the loop. And how do you make sure that they have access, first of all, to the patient record to be able to do some of this? But also, you know, how do payers, providers, pharmacists all work together, you know, to support some of this care? We talked, I, I kind of mentioned the, the high-tech committee meeting that happened last week, right? And, you know, the proposal to get a pharmacy subcommittee. And I think, you know, as we wait on that decision, I'm seeing in the, you know, the movement in the industry to really start thinking about how to bring pharmacists in. And just one last point on that. I know, you know, we've done quite a few projects this year in talking to pharmacists and health plans and health plans are really all over this, right? They're trying to understand how do we get our patients the outcomes we want in the lowest side of care. And a lot of times that ends up in the, in the pharmacy. So I think that's one thing that I would say, just kind of thinking about new trends that are coming. So Kim, I'm going to actually uh, turn it over to you as a fellow NCPP board member and part of the strategic planning committee, uh, just to come on in that before we close out. Yeah. So, so Pooja, I would even add, you know, the conversations with the health plans and employers also, it's around quality, right? So how can we ascertain care for, you know, those that we cover at the lowest or best cost, right? And with the most quality tied to it. And I think pharmacists absolutely play a critical role there with their ability to be accessible. And that was proven out, right? Through definitely through the pandemic, now endemic, but it's definitely an exciting time in healthcare, especially for the pharmacy community because of a lot of what you just mentioned here. But, you know, the need for clinical and administrative data access, use, storage, exchange to improve and actually coordinate on patient care, you know, it knows no boundaries. That includes the whole of the care team, like you mentioned, right? Including the pharmacist. And they must be able to operate or have an environment to operate in where all of that takes place. And the high tech committee did start focusing on what Jocelyn probably two years ago with the um, intersection of clinical and administrative data sub, you know, task group where they learned that not all of that information is flowing effectively. And the same thing is what we're learning, obviously, on the pharmacy services side. But the pandemic did put a huge spotlight on the fact that the pharmacist is a trusted member of the care team and they have a real opportunity to actually train transform their partnerships in healthcare and work alongside more plans specifically, employer groups specifically, and help them define how clinical care can be delivered. But that interoperability and that data use and exchange and storage has to, that funnel's got, has to open up and we have to figure out a way to do that. So over the course really of the last probably year, year and a half in Pooja, you mentioned it, right, that the NCPDP Strategic Planning Committee, you know, we've been really focused on this interoperability narrative and 
the fact that to work in, you know, PGX, to do value-based arrangements, to do all of that, you need the clinical and administrative data to be flowing through the pipes of, you know, the EHR into the pharmacy and back. And so we've learned a lot and diving in and digging in in interviews with those in, you know industry SMEs on how can we move the needle on this type of data fluidity for pharmacists and I was really surprised you know when we finally dug out from all of those interviews just how much the standards at NCPDP can already capture this information right it's it's opening the door to get that information shared and then actually even stored right and so it's not just I'm going to get it take action and pass it on how do I keep it as a part of the patient's health care record. So we know downstream other opportunities of care exist. So not everything is that a pharmacist does is tied to a value-based arrangement or agreement, even though that's where the, the SPC kind of focused on when we were doing our interviews. It is really about the whole clinical care process and the availability of pharmacists to be a part of that care team, provide quality care that can be measured Right. And that is cost effective uh, for the patient, giving them access. So I think we have a lot of really good opportunities in 2023, again, with the, the high tech subcommittee you're talking about, where that lands. You know, how can NCPDP and its members help inform that who are you know subject matter experts on the care, pharmacy care, right, how it operates. But it is different than traditional pharmacy and dispensing of medication. Not every clinical touch point requires dispensing of a medication. So there's some some education that needs that will have to take place as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, pharmacy, we always talk about, you know, value-based care, but it, sometimes it's just providing clinical care, right, outside of a, a VBC uh, arrangement. All right. So I know there's a few topics we haven't covered yet. Um, we could probably dedicate a full episode to these, but just want to do a super quick round robin weigh in um, on these subjects. I think we touched some of them, but TEFCA, HIPAA 2.0, health equity, what's new, what's real, what should we look out for for 2023? Joss, I'm going to start with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, uh, I think that there's a lot of subtopics, and I think that there's the cross-section of how all these things are going to interact with each other in reality. I feel like we're seeing um, sort of the work coming to fruition of all of those mega mergers that happened, right, over the last four or five years, those organizations each getting their house in order and starting to really decide how to leverage sort of people at their highest, best purpose and sort of, I would say, the rise of the platform over the coming year and how critically important it's going to be for organizations to decide who and how they're going to master their clinical data with, because that really is going to be the currency. I think that's going to allow people to move from sort of talking about how things should work to being able to differentiate it, aid themselves by executing in the market. And so, you know, across payers, vendors, providers, you know, how is that work going to move forward and who are you going to be partnering with to do that work? And I, I, I love that last conversation because I think it really ties on this thread. None, no one at POCP is surprised that we're talking about how to leverage pharmacy, right? And how to leverage pharmacists. We've been talking about this for years. We understand that there's maturity and capability here. The question is, is how are people going to be able to execute and where are we going to give them the running room um, because of the, the progress and standards to be able to really, you know, make, make clinical data fluid yet protected so people can execute really demonstrating and delivering on the proposed uh, improvements in patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Kim? 
Yeah, I mean, we we can't think about policy if we don't, you know, HIPAA. You know, we really didn't talk about HIPAA a whole lot, you know, but there is this confusion about information sharing when and where. I think we're going to see, you know, 2023 evolve into maybe some clarification there. And I think we need to be on the lookout for that because I think it will be helpful to, you know, clarify some of that for those who have questions about when should I share or not share? Am I blocking? Am I not blocking? Because with the encompassing and coming data fluidity, you know, era, I think we're going to have to get that ironed out a little bit more. Um, definitely Tefco. We didn't talk a lot about that. I know there's some really smart people at Boynton Care Partners who are focused on Tefco. So I would encourage anybody listening to this, if you've got questions about Tefco, definitely be reaching out to, to Boynton Care Partners because the needle is moving on that. You know, we've seen nine organizations who publicly came out and said that they were going to be going in for, you know, QHIN status. Well, now that those applications are moving forward, it's kind of like in this dark time. We don't know who else might be coming to the table, but it's going to come out. And of course, um, that will continue to increase the interoperability opportunity across state lines, you know, with those QHINs. But what's going to come out? You know, we know eHealth Exchange is at the table, Commonwealth at the table, Health Grill is at the table, Epic's at the table. So I think organizations really need to be thinking thoughtfully about how they can lean into or, or um, engage in that process with those QHINs and what that's going to look like for sure. And we spoke about it earlier, but but definitely this equation around health equity. You know, just last week, uh, CMS did release their, um, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I think it's called the Path Forward to Improving Data to Advance Health Equity Solutions, not to advance health equity, but solutions that help with health equity. So I think we really need to be on uh, the lookout for that and those social determinants of health-related conversations. And what can we do as an industry and with our partners, right, to bring those solutions to fruition and answer the call there. Great. So I always say this at the end of when we have the three of us get together, but I love these conversations. We unpack so much on this podcast. So uh, time to unfortunately close out, but um, I just want to have us all share what we're most hopeful to see in 2023. I think Jocelyn, you make a really good point. You know, I think for years at Pointy Care Partners, we've talked about how to bring pharmacists in and, you know, how we can do that. And it's great to see that, you know, we're finally starting to see movement towards that. So I'm hopeful in 2023. And I just know the industry conversations we're having, the conversations we're having at CPDP conversations we're having at ONC is, you know, this is really going to be kind of a, a big focus on pharmacy and pharmacists. And it, it's been a long time coming and it's great to see some focus here. So Kim, your comments on on what you're hopeful for for 2023 as we close out. Um, you know, Pooja, Pooja and Jocelyn, I, quite honestly, altruistic and class always have full. I'm, I'm excited as a patient, right, in the healthcare ecosystem. And the focus that so many in the industry are placing on helping me and others, my my children, you know, understand what our options are and trying to move the needle on providing, you know, quality information to me and to my providers and those, whether it's a pharmacist I'm going to see or my primary care provider and giving them the information that they need to help me holistically as a patient. I'm really excited about that. And, uh, you know, obviously can't think enough of, you know, the work happening in DaVinci, NCPDP, Codex, and all the other accelerators and standards development work and the policymakers who are listening. So I'm excited to see what comes out from that that helps me move in the healthcare journey as a patient. That's great. Joss, last word. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's about momentum. 
And I think that, you know, uh, if we see regulation provide the alignment, that would be another one of my words for 2023 that we really need to get people to execute and to start their projects or to double down and start moving into production with work that they've been doing for the last couple of years. I think that will be really exciting. I agree with Kim. I'm very optimistic, maybe not as optimistic as she is, but I do see that, you know, we're building all the foundational pieces to start to make the investments so that the world we think we live in actually does exist in reality so that we can get that increased coordination and care across the patient um, journey. In the meantime, you know, I'm super excited to see where people are going to have the tools at the ready to really differentiate and execute and market. I think in a way that we just haven't been able to to date and, you know, excited to see, you know, who's going to come out the front of the path, you know, uh, over the next year to 18 months here. Great. So thank you both. Just want to thank uh, my POCP co-hosts, Jocelyn and Kim, and thank you to our audience for sticking with us this past year. We want to wish you the happiest holidays and the best for 2023. I know we already have a couple of great guests to kick off the new year, so we're excited about that. So just a friendly reminder to our new listeners, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to pick up your podcast, um, including Healthcare Now Radio and the podcast channel. So a big shout out to them as well. So uh, just a reminder, we also post our videos of our podcast episodes. Um, Sometimes they're longer versions. (laughs) We can tend to go on and on on these uh, podcasts, but there's always such great information to unpack. Um, So visit us at our YouTube channel. Uh, It's the POCP YouTube channel. So uh, thanks again. Uh, And don't forget that health IT is the dish best served hot. Is it a challenge to stay on top of interoperability regulations and the flurry of activity with fire accelerators? Email us at interopoutlook at POCP.com to learn more about our new interoperability outlook subscription monitoring service. 